Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Remember to join us next Tuesday, August 28th, at 6.30 at the Detroit Public Library on Woodward as we conclude our Detroit Today Summer Book Club events. Uh, We have been reading together Matthew Desmond's Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Evicted, this summer, and talking about how evictions and foreclosures and tax foreclosures all sort of weave together to make a fabric of housing insecurity here in Southeast Michigan. We've had some really great events in Royal Oak, or I'm sorry, in Ferndale, in Warren, uh, in Gross Point. Uh, we opened at Source Booksellers here in Detroit, and we're going to close here in Detroit at the Public Library next Tuesday at 6.30. So uh, be sure to come out and join that conversation. And if you can't make it there, you can also participate in the book club on Facebook. Uh, If you just search for the Detroit Today Summer Book Club there, or if you go to WDET.org, you can find out about some of the other things that we have been doing. I also want to thank everybody who has come out to the events so far. We have been really overwhelmed here by the response and the interest uh, in this subject and in this book. It's been a really great summer of very interesting discussions with our listeners about these really important issues. Okay, up first today, prisoners incarcerated across 17 states have joined a strike that is expected to last into mid-September with work stoppages and hunger striking in protest of inhumane living conditions. Prisoners have formed a list of 10 demands, which include prevailing wages for manual labor, fair treatment of black and brown prisoners, access to rehab services, and the right to vote. The mounting pressures and lack of humanity in the prison systems of America have been long discussed by my first guest today, and we've got her here to talk with you about what is going on and what it means. Heather Ann Thompson is a professor of history at the University of Michigan and author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Blood in the Water, about the Attica prison uprising. Heather, welcome back to Detroit Today. Great to be here. Yes, it is always great to have you here uh, to talk about these things. Let's start with uh, what is going on in American prisons this week. And I'm not sure everybody is paying attention to what's going on. It's gotten a little coverage. It's it's been uh, sort of spotty here and there. But I have to say, I had to, to sort of go back and do a little reading myself just to catch up on what is happening, where it's happening, and why. Well, I think it's a it's a really interesting case in which there are serious, serious issues going on in America's prisons, and most of the time we don't hear about them at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, prisons are out of sight, out of mind, unless you happen to have a loved one that is uh, incarcerated or is working in a prison. And then periodically we see these moments where the folks inside stand up and basically say, please pay attention to mm-hmm. what conditions look like. And this is one of those moments. It, it happens uh, much more frequently than we realize. But this is notable because it was more planned, more organized, and, uh, and notably organized from the inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, actual folks on the inside reached out to each other and to the media and said on this day, uh, which was August 21st, the death, uh, commemorating the death of uh, prisoner rights activist George Jackson. We will begin this uh, strike, is what they're calling it, although it's also a sit-in and uh, a number of other protests. And we will end it uh, on uh, the September where the Attica uprising started, Mm -hmm. September 9th. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, and so it is. It has begun, and and um, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> so so Vox, uh, which is an online publication, says this could be one of the largest prison strikes we've ever seen in the country. Uh, why now? And and when you say it's been organized from the inside. I'm not sure people quite can even sort of wrap their minds around that. I mean, how do prisoners coordinate uh, across states, uh, across prisons, obviously, to make sure that they're all doing something together? Well, first, let me say that in terms of whether it will be the largest, um, one of the fascinating things right now is that we have no idea uh, Mm -hmm. how many folks have actually engaged in this protest uh, in any state, let alone our own. Uh, and that's not uh, because we aren't looking. It's because usually prison officials are loath to admit when their institutions are in chaos. And uh, this happened in 2016 as well. There was a, con- a concerted effort to uh, protest prison conditions across the country in 2016, again on the Attica anniversary. And it took months before we realized uh, how many people had actually protested. I mean, even today, there's some dispute. Some say 20,000, some say 40. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's very, very difficult to know who's actually participating until usually there's some uh, particular conflict or someone's locked down uh, or, or the institution is uh, uh, listed as a, a security breach. Um, but but nevertheless, people do communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, perhaps we should not be surprised by that. Um, folks inside, just like us, want to read. They read prison newspapers. Uh, they read, for example, prison legal news. They read uh, the Bayview out of San Francisco and a number of publications. And so they learn that this is uh, something that, that will be That's planned. That's going on, yeah. Right. And um, and in a lot of facilities, uh, there are actually cell phones, which might surprise folks on the outside. Um, and there's been real controversy about that. This is uh, this all led to a big prison riot in South Carolina mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in April. And prison officials said it was because the guys had cell phones that this riot happened, a controversy over the cell phones. Uh, the guys inside tell me that Quite the opposite. Cell phones are what allows them to stay tethered to their families, their children, help mm-hmm. their kids with homework, and also that the cell phones are how they document the human rights abuses inside. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so the cell phones actually have also become uh, a mechanism by which folks have planned this uprising. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Heather Ann Thompson, a professor of history at the University of Michigan, author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Blood in the Water, about the Attica prison uprising. We are talking about the current prison strike that is unfolding across prisons in America, scheduled to end sometime in mid-September. Uh, the prisoners are protesting inhumane conditions, and they have a list of 10 demands uh, that they would like prison officials to meet. They include fair wages for their labor. They include the right to vote. Uh, they include better treatment for black and brown prisoners. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Tell us what you think about prison strikes. Tell us what you think about this prison strike or prison uprisings uh, that we see from time to time. And talk about the list of demands that these prisoners have. Should prisoners be able to vote? Should prisoners be paid for the labor they provide while they're in prison? Uh, Is that 
the kind of reform we need to uh, move forward in terms of the way that uh, our criminal justice system deals with those who have broken the law? Or do you think these are pretty bad ideas that uh, people are in prison for a reason and they ought to suffer while they're there? Uh, again, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag uh, Detroit Today, and you can war- and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Um, Heather, I, I want to talk about what the conditions in American prisons are like. I mean, you're somebody who who knows a lot more about that than most Americans do. Um, I spent some time in the 2000s uh, when I was covering the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, in prisons uh, and and researching prisons and prison conditions because every so often uh, these issues end up in, in the Supreme Court. Uh, they end up uh, uh, being decided by the highest court in the land. Uh, I was surprised, I have to say, when I went to some of the prisons that I went to. And these were prisons in the South. Um, uh, and often, uh, often I was visiting death row in, mm-hmm. in those places. And uh, the the level of madness that unfolds in those places uh, on a daily basis, and and you know, uh, this was these were scheduled visits with prison officials. I mean, they had every opportunity to make things look mm-hmm. as good as they possibly could, uh, but but it was very obvious to me uh, that these were really really awful places. Uh, and that people were living there in conditions that we wouldn't expect anyone uh, to right. have to put up with. Right. Well, I think this is the this is the crux of the issue. Uh, many many Americans uh, are perfectly comfortable with the idea of prison and with sending people away from their families uh, to serve time uh, for having committed some offense. Mm-hmm. But most Americans, once they see what that actually looks like in today's prisons, are in fact deeply appalled. Uh, not just in southern prisons, where we might expect it because of prejudices about the mm-hmm. South, mm-hmm. Uh, but in fact in many northern prisons as well. Um, the reason for this uh, this terrible state of affairs is that we have no transparency, virtually none. Uh, these are institutions that we pay for, they are public, we support them, and yet uh, visits like the one you had are incredibly rare. They're very hard to do. It's very, very difficult to get in. And so what that means is that those inside are really completely at the mercy of whoever is in charge of them. And in some institutions, that's a, you know better than in others. Mm-hmm. But the overall picture is terrible. It's terrible medical care. It's terrible um, rules so that, you know, people are spending much more time in solitary confinement than any doctor would deem uh, uh, okay Mm -hmm. for human beings. Um, And uh, the sentences are so incredibly long now, even for low-level drug crimes, that uh, folks then become untethered from their families. They become untethered from community. Mm -hmm. And so there is a deterioration that you see. Now, that is not even touching on things like 
the fact that uh, you have prisons, for example, in Louisiana or in Texas where the temperature is over 100 yeah. degrees yeah. and they are not air conditioned. Yeah. Uh, that's bad for guards and prisoners, mm-hmm. incidentally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people have no ventilation. Some of these institutions are so old. You know, you think about the lead poisoning. I mean, so if you're doing a 20 year sentence, mm-hmm. you're drinking prison water for 20 years, mm-hmm. you're being poisoned. So, uh, so why should we care? Well, of course, these are our family members, but also, of course, everyone comes home, yeah. and and we we at least ostensibly seek to create a more just community and a safer community at the end of this process. Yeah. And uh, so that's what these guys are standing up for. They're they're really calling attention. By the way, not just to prison labor and um, and the conditions, but also to these sentences. They are asking for sentencing reform, and they are asking for reform of the law right now in place that essentially prevents them from suing, uh, from bringing lawsuits, yeah. and thus bringing attention to these degraded, uh, degraded conditions. Yeah. Uh, I also was struck uh, when I was doing this work uh, in the last decade by the very obvious connections between the modern criminal justice system and, first of all, Jim Crow, mm-hmm. uh, but then even deeper back uh, to slavery. Uh, and you mentioned prisons in Louisiana, Angola, mm-hmm. uh, the state penitentiary there is a former plantation, uh, literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it still operates and as such. It, it, you know, if you go there, I don't know that you would tell, be able to tell the difference uh, right now, other than that there are cells rather than uh, uh, you know cabins or, or, or whatever they had. Um, uh, talk some about that greater context here of what's going on currently mm-hmm. and and how it connects to our history of inequality. Well, if it were the case that everyone that uh, broke the law. Uh, did time equally in our criminal justice system, we probably wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation. Mm -hmm. The reality is that uh, those who end up in the system are those who are most policed, whose neighborhoods are most policed, whose uh, infractions have far more attention on them. And so for that reason, because we have unjust uh, uh, policing and unjust prosecutions and unjust uh, trials, we have way disproportionate uh, uh, presence of black and brown prisoners in America. So that through line from enslavement all the way to the present day uh, is is very much there. It's one of the reasons why these guys, one of their demands is to think about greater racial equity in our criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's also, by the way, why this issue of labor is so powerful to the folks inside. Because, um, you know, I think outsiders think, well, you know, you're in prison. Why not work off your time? Why not uh, make sheets mm-hmm. or make license plates or do whatever? you do. And what they don't understand is that um, this is a deep level of exploitation. It's not that prisoners don't want to work. In fact, many do want to work, but mm-hmm. they would love to be able to make enough money to at least take care of their children at Send home. Send some money home, right? Exactly. Or to pay the exorbitant uh, commissary prices, because that's all, again, you know, this kind of exploitation inside the system. And for us on the outside, we should care about that because we should want people's children to have enough to eat back home. Mm-hmm. We should want uh, companies to to not be able to go into these prisons uh, and uh, just exploit other workers. Uh, that has consequences on the outside as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, But for, for those on the inside, it does feel like slavery. You don't have a choice whether to do this work. You can't call in sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, you uh, can get 
you know, severe penalties for resisting, for example, bad working conditions, sure. cadmium that, you know, sprays in the air when you're like just when you're recycling computers or or whatever, mm-hmm. meat processing, you know, losing an arm. Uh, and uh, and so this is it does resonate with people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, when we talk about uh, uh, labor in particular, in prisons, I feel like that's a story that's developing right now in ways that it wasn't ten or uh, ten or fifteen or twenty years ago. That that you now have companies that contract with prisons to have their prisoners perform labor for them. They then get the goods at a at a real discounted uh, price and then sell them mm-hmm. retail, and then the prisoners don't don't benefit from that. I mean that that really does, I think push us back even further in American history mm-hmm. uh, in terms of not just racial inequality, but also labor and mm-hmm. fair fair labor practice. I mean, uh, and this is not just in a few prisons. This is in a lot of places now. Well, and that's right. And and certainly uh, living in Michigan, that, that really strikes a chord because this is not just a question of the criminal justice system. As you as you note, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a labor question. Right. Um, it's a reason why trade union members and, um, you know, key unions like the UAW should be involved in the issue of criminal justice reform. Uh, it, frankly, uh, the last time we got rid of prison labor from prisons was during the Great Depression, mm-hmm. and that was because the trade union movement got involved in the issue. And then uh, we sort of banned it or we put severe regulations on it, and while nobody was paying attention we get mass incarceration and businesses essentially wake up and say, hey, we've now got two million people in the system. Uh, let's start to make goods inside of prisons. Mm-hmm. And they began to overturn all of those regulations. Meanwhile, the labor movement and workers on the outside sort of sleep at the wheel. And that's where we sit today. And and yet, again, this issue of transparency, I can't tell you uh, what that looks like economically. I mm-hmm. can't tell you what the economic impact is, and I can't tell you exactly how much prison labor goes on in this country because, again, we have no real duty to report. We don't have any real transparency. But the guys inside and the women inside will tell you uh, it's a problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Heather Ann Thompson about the current living conditions in American prisons. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. James and Fraser, Angela in Detroit, we'll get to you next. If you want to join the conversation, talk about prison conditions. Should they be better? Uh, should prisoners should be striking to force them to be better? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or Twitter. Uh, hashtag us at Detroit Today. We'll work you into the conversation. Uh, we will be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. My guest is Heather Ann Thompson, professor of history at the University of Michigan and author 
of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Blood in the Water, which is about the Attica prison uprising. We are talking about the current prison strike that is unfolding in many states here in America, what it's about, what the prisoners want, and the conditions that they live in that are inspiring this protest. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. In particular, I'd love to hear today from some folks who either served time in prison about what they saw while they were there, what were the conditions like, uh, and how could they be improved, uh, and also folks who have relatives who are in the criminal justice system. Uh, what does it look like from your vantage point, how uh, they are treated and uh, how they are even able to maintain relationships with their family outside the prison while they're there. Uh, let's go to Angela in Detroit. Angela, welcome to Detroit Today. Um, I'm wondering if you have seen Michael Moore's Where Do We Invade Next? Yes, yes, I have. Okay, he had that section on prison treatment in one of the Scandinavian countries. I don't know which one. But uh, the men there, the prison is on an island, so obviously they can't get out, uh, except that they do have work on the mainland, some of them, depending on how long they've been there and how trustworthy they've been. They live in cottages. They have their own clothes. They're not lockstep in any kind of way. And toward the end of the movie, the, uh, well, Moore, the person who's investigating this is asking then what's what's punishment about this and the man said with real sadness i don't see my family Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i'm i'm isolated from ordinary life and that really hurts Mm -hmm. um that was a big lesson to me about the thing that means the most to people it was taken away but not their human dignity not their ability to earn, not their ability to wear what they want on whatever day they want. I just thought that was important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you shared that because what it reminds us is that the way that we do this in this country, the way we do criminal justice, the way we decide punishment mm-hmm. is, in fact, a huge international outlier. Uh, frankly, it's an outlier from the way we've often done it in our own history. Yeah. and. This moment where we are just, there's no punishment that is severe enough, no level of degradation that's deep enough. Um, This is a moment that we need to step away from. And I think that's why this is an important strike, Uh, regardless of how many folks actually are able to go out. And I say able to because the repression is so so serious. Uh, It gives us all on the outside a real opportunity to to rethink this Mm -hmm. and to to ask uh, for some change, which, by the way, in Michigan, I mean, there's a lot of folks on the ground working really hard, you know, Safe and Just Michigan and Lansing, lots of formerly incarcerated folks really pushing the issue now. Um, And and this just gives us an opportunity to really reckon with what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, When we talk about change and reform in prisons, where are we with that agenda, both at the state level and and at the federal level at this point? Um, What what has surprised me over the last couple of years is, is the number of conservatives and Republicans who have come out and said, this is no way to, to, to manage this issue. Uh, I think for them, in large measure, it's a financial 
uh, problem, right? Uh, we spend $2 billion on mm-hmm. prisons here in Michigan. Imagine if we could cut that in half, mm-hmm. even uh, what we could do with the roads or education. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, are we are we gaining traction, I guess, in the conversation about reform to the point where we could expect that things will change in the next uh, five or 10 years? Well, I think it's a it's a really interesting mixed bag as to what's happening right now. Uh, in 2016, we were feeling this was right on the eve of the presidential election. We were feeling like there was a lot of momentum in criminal justice reform at the federal level and at the state level. Um, And then since that election, something very strange has happened, Mm -hmm. which is that there's been a complete shutdown on the question of human rights at the federal level. But at the state level, that momentum, I feel, is still very much there. Uh, We see local organizations definitely pushing for criminal justice reform. Uh, There there is, of course, pushback against that, too. Uh, There are people who feel very empowered by the last election to resist criminal justice reform. But in general, uh, yes, as you point out— Uh, No matter what your political background is, if you take a state like Michigan, where we have almost a quarter million people under criminal justice control, a quarter million people. That's unbelievable. That, I mean, we've reduced the prison population Mm -hmm. to, you know, well under 40 or actually 42,000 people. But the number of people under criminal justice control, almost almost a quarter million I don't care what political hat you wear, something's not working. Yeah. And I feel like there's momentum. But boy, uh, when we need the Justice Department now to come into these prisons and actually see what's going on, namely right now in South Carolina, uh, it's, a, it's a real tragedy that at the federal level, this stuff is stalled. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Angela, thanks for the call and the comments. Let's go to Lee in Detroit. Lee, welcome to Detroit today. Good morning, Stephen. Hey. If I could ask, uh, when I'm done, if you could your person could take me offline. I want to leave you a message because I need to get in contact with you. But um, first of all, I wanted to thank your uh, your guest and you for having this discussion. Mm-hmm. Years ago, I served as the uh, Southeast Michigan Area Director for Prison Fellowship Ministries. And I can tell you that back then, and this was in the mid to late 90s, um, the idea of reform was just anathema. Nobody really wanted to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I agree with your guest that there have been substantial um, movement toward reform, um, but it's something we really, really need to focus on. I would encourage um, folks who are listening in, if you really want to get a picture of this, there's a documentary called 13. You can get it on Netflix or you know, pick it up, watch that. Um, I would encourage you to watch it on a Friday where you have a weekend to decompress after watching it. But... Um, <laughs> It, it's, it gives you a, a clear understanding of what, a clearer understanding of the history of our prisons, uh, as you mentioned earlier, from uh, from slavery to where we are now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there are some real positive things that have been going on. I would list up um, uh, University of Michigan-Dearborn has a program called Inside Out, where they actually work with uh, inmates. It's really powerful in changing uh, the culture within some of the prisons, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and those are some things that can be done to help make it better for everyone. But keeping uh, inmates connected to their families, particularly to the boys, uh, is critical, and any efforts we can make to improve that uh, would be would, would be great. Yeah, yeah, Lee, I, I appreciate the call and the comments. Of course, that movie the Thirteenth is uh, is is really powerful, and again draws that that direct connection between what's happening now and the history. 
that uh, we have uh, that we share in this country of inequality. Um, uh, th- this idea, though, of trying to keep uh, prisoners away from their families or setting up the prison so that it's difficult for prisoners to keep touch with their family, it's, it's kind of another uh, echo of, uh, of the, the, the more garish instances of inequality in our history. I mean, you think of uh, slavery and, and, and Jim Crow and the mm-hmm. ways in which they affected families. The prison system today is pretty similar. Well, that's why it's it's. Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful that the the caller mentioned uh, what's happening at U of M Dearborn, also at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Mm-hmm. We're trying to create an entire center for uh, supporting folks on the inside and and studying how we got into this mess. Uh, the center for uh, the study of the carceral state, and and we're doing that precisely because uh, our prisons here in Michigan are way far away from where most of the people live who were originally arrested. And that's not uh, coincidental. That is deliberate. It is to to have as much separation as possible. But it also has deep meaning because when prisons are far away, we don't have to look at them. I mean, imagine if right in the middle of downtown Detroit, uh, a prison was a huge translucent box Mm -hmm. where every day you had to walk by and see what your what your tax dollars were supporting and the horrors that go on inside or or how about the almost 400 children in Michigan sentenced to serve life sentences you know originally with no chance of parole and what if you had to go every single day and see what that looked like so when prisons are far away it allows us to to let them do whatever they want and the programs at Michigan uh, key organizations like Safe and Just Michigan and key folks who have served time in Michigan who are now on the outside pushing this issue are making us realize this is our responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, in, in Michigan right now, I know that one of the things, one of the real problems we have is not just with prison, but with jail, mm-hmm, right? That, mm-hmm. uh, that so many people are haven't even been sentenced to go to prison, haven't had a trial yet, but are waiting uh, for that. That that seems to be another wrinkle of this. I wonder if the jails are participating in this prison strike and if that's maybe a separate issue from what goes on in in prisons themselves. Well, you know, jails used to be a quite separate issue from prisons because jails were the place where you would go and you would spend a shorter amount of time awaiting trial or uh, or uh, pass through, uh, you know, and come back later on for a court date. Mm-hmm. But because of the injustice of the system, most people who are arrested are poor and most people cannot afford bail. And when you can't afford bail, you have to stay in the jail. So jails have become prisons. They uh, Folks have been in there for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. The conditions are also terrible. Mm-hmm. And these are people who have not been convicted. These are people who are, who are legally as free as you and I sitting here. So uh, yeah, it, it is un, it's not clear to me whether jails are going to participate in this or folks in jail. Uh, but but their, their rationale for doing so uh, would be exactly the same as it is for folks in a state prison or a federal prison for that yeah, matter. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Ken in Ferndale. Ken, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. And my, my, my fundamental comment here is that we have to separate uh, the private from the prison systems. Um, every instance in which there is a temptation to do the wrong thing for money uh, ends up being exploited 
by somebody in our culture. And the supreme irony in this is that when you've got people working for for less than what should be market wage or when you've got private prisons that make money based on how many people they incarcerate, uh, the very system that's intended to punish those kinds of types of behavior elsewhere in our culture are 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 led into the temptation to to do the wrong thing themselves. Sure, sure. Ken, I uh, appreciate the call and the comments. Uh, this idea of privatizing prisons as a way to, to make them more efficient uh, often forgets the obligation to, to respect human rights. We've seen that here in Michigan with the outsourcing of the food service, which was a disaster uh, over a long period of time. But that's not the only it's not the only example of that. Right. And, and, and yeah, it was a really important, important comment. Um, I, I do think that folks, when they realize that that there are companies who can actually profit off of this human misery, and, and, and by misery I mean for all concerned, those who've been victimized uh, by a crime, those who are inside serving time, uh, you know, how is it that we can have someone actually profit off of that? Right. Well, we can. And in Michigan and in many states, the issue is not actually so much about private prisons. That's about 7% of all of our uh, uh, institutions. I mean, th- that's bad. Mm-hmm. But but the real scary issue is that it's our public institutions that have privatized to such an extent. All kinds of services. Food right. service, medical transport, uh, you know, every possible thing you can imagine. I've, I've said before, for, you know, everything from tampons to tasers to telephones. It's all privatized. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, that's a disincentive to dismantle this. It's a disincentive to go in the direction of other countries like Norway. Uh, it's a disincentive for us to have more community uh, ways of handling this. Yeah. Uh, again, Ken, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Before I let you go, Heather, uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what you're working on now. I know I don't know if you're ready to do that, but <laughs> a little bit <laughs> put sure, you a little sure. on the spot. But I'm so excited about this, and it 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 is it's relatable to this uh, this other subject in in some ways uh, in, in terms of the way that authorities respond to black and brown people, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 don't in similar situations with with white people. But uh, talk just a little bit about Move and Mm -hmm. Philadelphia. Right. So my next book is uh, about a bombing that took place in Philadelphia in 1985, uh, where the Philadelphia police essentially dropped a bomb on a Philadelphia row house filled with a uh, black organization, a family of black folks who uh, had been sort of in conflict with the police for many decades over uh, lots of issues. But the issue of fair policing in Philadelphia was mm-hmm. a key one. And um, and that story, like the Attica story, is one of these kind of moments in time where we can freeze frame and really look at our justice system in a new way and appreciate what the costs of doing this the way we are doing this have been. Uh, in the case of Philadelphia and Move, um, you're talking about a story that actually goes back to 64 there. They had an urban uprising just like Detroit did mm-hmm. in 67. Mm-hmm. 
And the backlash to that, which was this really aggressive policing under Mayor Rizzo, uh, leads to this sustained conflict with MOVE. So that's the next book. Um, And it'll give me a chance to look not so much at prison, although notably nine of the MOVE members are still in prison after uh, a conflict with the police in 1978, Mm -hmm. uh, one of of whom just came home after 40 years. Um, So it is a story about prisons, but fundamentally it's a story about police. Policing, because policing is where this all begins. That's right. That's right. Okay, Heather Ann Thompson, always great to have you here and hear what you're up to. Uh, Thank thanks you. for joining us on Thank Detroit you. Today. Take care, Stephen. Yep. Up next, the Republican and Democratic conventions are this weekend in Michigan. What should we be looking out for? Uh, stay with us on Detroit Today. Yeah. All right.